It's so good to have you with us as we embark on our very, very last installment of our, our, our series, uh, Grace. And whether you are a Christian and have been a Christian for a long time, or whether you're exploring this whole thing like Andrew was, this whole spirituality stuff, or whether you're just visiting with us today for, uh, with a friend, we are so glad that you get a chance to see for yourself if Christianity is truly different and whether it warrants you being different. Because put it that way, the reason why many of us don't take a spiritual quest very seriously is because we're worried about the impact they will have on us. Because if you believe in something that's different to what you believed in, if you're like Andrew and all of a sudden you're confronted with the reality, hey, am I sure? That you will have to do something different. And I want to answer with you the proposition that Christianity may indeed be different enough, valid enough, differentiated enough that warrants the risk of you being different. And every religion, every point of view, every philosophical idea has to answer one or uh, maybe even the three big questions uh, that we want answered. The first one is the question of destiny. You know, even those who don't believe in a higher being, they have an understanding or a proposition about what destiny looks like for people. They have an answer to that, regardless of what the answer is. Then we have the question of identity. Who am I? And who defines me? And how does that get regulated in day-to-day activities? And finally, and we answered those first two Uh, topics in the past couple of weeks. Today we finish off with the topic of morality. And morality in a very simplistic way, it's about the idea, how is it like us to act? So it's not just about what we think. It's not about just what we believe. It's not about what we have to, um, uh, you know, uh, debate. It's all about how is it like us to act? And for the Jewish nation, the people that define their identity by the national identity by their relationship with God, they had a particular morality standards, if you like, and those codes, those regulations, those rules were based on what they believed God had asked them to live out. This is if God created or if God initiated or God established their nation and if God established this family and God established this chosen people, he had every right to tell them what it's like them to act. How is it like them to act? So uh, you probably were aware, maybe through movies or, or through things that you've heard, even if you're not a Christian, if you didn't grow up as a Christian, about the Ten Commandments. And, and this was almost like the rules and the regulations that the Jewish nation abided by in order to get brownie points with God. They, they, they had the blessings and the curses associated with that uh, standard, just like any other law, right? You know, you don't drive on 160 in an 80 zone and expect that the police to come pat you on the back and say, hey, don't do that again. You know, there are consequences to everything. And they understood quite clearly uh, that you do the right thing and this is what's going to happen to you. You you disobey. You don't adhere to these codes and these benchmarks and and, and these behavioral uh, standards and you will cop the consequences. 
But over the period of time, those 10 words or those 10 commands or whatever it might you want to call them, the 10 rules and regulations, the teachers and the traditions, uh, the Jewish traditions have expanded on them. And believe it or not, in order to explain them, they ended up with about 613 commands. Imagine that. If I asked you to tell me the Ten Commands, you and I might even struggle to say it in public, let alone think about it in a moment of judgment, practical judgment, where you have to make a split decision. All of a sudden, it's like, which one of those Ten Commands? Imagine if there were 613 commands that you had to discern what to do. They had commands about everything. So it was so, so demanding for the Jewish nation to live in adherence to this code of morality. And maybe that's the reason why you left Christianity altogether. Maybe that's the reason you may have left the faith or you don't adhere to the faith as you once were. Because it seems that you put God, just like the Jewish nation, in a demanding box. That He is such a demanding God, He expects so much of you and He expects so much of humanity. He's the fun police. He's the one that anything that you want to do, he would say no. You don't need to ask. The answer is no. And, 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 and for you, that's such a, a perception of God that in, uh, inhibits you enjoying somebody like that. Imagine if you grew up in a, in a home environment where before you ask, it's no. That would be pretty annoying, wouldn't you think? But for some others, felt like they obligated to live under that code. And they try, and they try really hard. You know, I gotta do this, and I gotta go do that because I need to please this demanding God. I need to get on His good side. And as you have experienced, if you lived under that code, is that eventually you fail, eventually you feel guilty. You try again, and you fail, and you feel more guilty. And after several times, you become so despondent that you wish you could give up if you haven't already. Because who can? You know, there's people that say, I live by the Ten Commands or I live by the Sermon on the Mount. They eventually understand that that's not even possible. And that's why so many people said, I either give up on that morality code or I'm going to feel guilty. And some gave up on the idea that there is an absolute code. That there is a God, that there is a divine being that could determine what sort of lifestyle should we have. Like, who the heck are you? No wonder philosophers said God is dead. That means he has no influence on the way I live. And predominantly that concept came out of the idea or the perception that we don't have absolute morality code. We don't need somebody to tell us how we live. That was the birth of this concept of God is dead and we killed him. That he doesn't have influence over us. But when you speak to people who are uh, like Andrew grew up, atheist, and you say to them, okay, so, so how do you abide? How, how is it like you to act? They will tell you that it's actually a code, that there's some sort of criteria and that they don't need a God to tell them how to behave because they're capable of doing it. And they have three primary principles that determine how you behave, how you relate in life, how is it like you to act. And they call them that consequential type of criteria. You know, you have consequences to everything. So before you make a decision, you got to realize whether the consequences are advantageous or uh, are not good to have. So they make decisions on the consequences 
of their decisions or, or, or the, the codes uh, of their behavior. Secondly, they look at reciprocity or the title or whatever you like, read it. Uh, can't, can't, can't pronounce it. How can we do that on the tape? I don't know. Uh, we can write on the CD, please, Nelson. Reciprocity. And they say it's mutual exchange between people. So you realize if you do this, that's what's going to happen to people. And you make decisions based on that. You know what's so freaky? When you listen to some of those um, uh, pleasantly deluded atheists, um, they, they, they say that that principle of reciprocity is basically do unto others what you want them to do unto you. It's like, what? That's a God thing. You can't get it both ways. You can't say he doesn't exist and he, we don't want his rules and yet you're using his rules. That's double dipping. It can't happen. That's, that's delusional. But nevertheless, can you live with that? Can you live with the idea that of, of making all your uh, decisions and can you actually function in that environment? You know, well, uh, maybe all of that is possible. But you know what the last one that is so difficult in mingling in all of those codes? They talk about individual freedom. And one of the criteria to make your decisions, to agree on the type of behaviors that, and, the, and the judgments that you make is individual freedom. And that is tough. Because you and I know the atrocities that have been committed across histories and centuries with people who've got nothing to do with God. You know, they pick on some incidents in the Old Testament and, and, and how people behaved who called themselves, you know, religious. Have they forgotten the other incidents that happened throughout history, ancient cultures and pagan cultures, and how children were killed and burnt and troubled for the sake of ridiculous sort of paganism? It's not just the God of the Bible that they are deluded with. They're deluded with history because the nature of the human soul is so desperately wicked. We have a defect in our very being that when we think about ourselves, it is very hard at times to think about the freedom of somebody else. And you know what? You think about it. Some things that we do begin with freedom and forget other people, they end up with our own slavery. You don't need to think too much about it. Forget the people. Let's, let's just think we're not going to be sensitive to other people. But think about people who use substance abuse for the sake of pleasure and freedom and joy. What happens to those people? After a period of time, they became this very slave to the type of thing they thought would bring them freedom. So individual freedom is not that free. And it happens in relationships. People that do things for the sake of their own freedom and for the sake of their own pleasure. And what happens? They hurt their family, their partners. What about those people that want to spend and spend and spend, you know, uh, whether it's you know, uh, shopping therapy or whatever you, they call it, or whether it's uh, uh, gambling or whatever it is, so that I can be happier. They're free to do that until such a time comes when they're no longer free to choose what they want to do despite of how hard things are in their family, in their, in, their, in their health, and in their financial endeavors. But there is a code that kills rules and regulations and make, makes people truly free. 
And that what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. Because when it comes to morality, people think about religion in terms of rules and regulations, do's and don'ts. And that's why it is our fault as a church that we communicated with the people in the world. And if you have never been a Christian, I want to say sorry to you. We've got it wrong. Because what we did to the world around us, this is what you do and this is what you not do. And is it any wonder that they think our God is a demanding God that can hardly be pleased. But the truth, friends, if you want to really think about Christianity, Christianity is done away with rules and regulation, and it is absolutely crazy to get your head around it. Because we have gotten a type of Christianity, a type of a churchianity, a type of a spirituality that has got nothing to do with the real Christianity that Jesus lived and died for. We have created a mixture of a spirituality that suits our own understanding. But you know the reality is, if you choose Christianity, if you choose to follow Jesus, the rules and the regulations do not connect you to God. And that's why in the, in the whole book of the whole letter of Galatians that we've been parking at and we've been working through the past few weeks, the people in Galatia, known as the Jewish Christian experts or the Judaizers, those people heard that Paul saying, there is freedom. You don't have to have the law. You don't have to have rules and regulations. And they were so mad with him. They went to the, the churches in Galatia, which is a Roman province. Uh, in, in the central south Turkey, and they were telling people, don't let this guy trick you, because if you do not have, if you do not observe the law, if you don't do the regulation type of stuff, you're stuffed. You, you, you have no way of pleasing, you have no morality. And then Paul says to them, let me tell you, you can have a morality that sets you free, and it is not based on what you already think you know, and you don't need. So let, let, let us work together through Galatians chapter 5 in the, in the few minutes that we have. And I want to show you what Paul says there. To the best of my capacity, I hope that I could reveal to you the type of irritation that Paul has had with the Galatians that believed in Jesus but wanted to follow a Jewish tradition, customs, and observance of the law. You know, just a couple of chapters later, uh, earlier, he says to them, you're foolish. You know, that's not really how you start a letter to a friend, right? But now, he's, 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 he's been a little bit calmer. He had a cup of tea or a coffee, whatever, wherever you come from, whatever made him calmer. And here he goes again. He says in, in, in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, it is for what? Oh, come on, you're going to wake up. I'm, I'm killing myself here, friends. Come on, wake up. We've got noodles after the service, not during the service. The only two that are allowed to sleep is Matt and Katie. They jet lag. The rest of you, be up. Be awake. It is for freedom. Thank you, Eric. That Christ has set... I'll pay you later. Um, that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of... Make my, mark my words. I, Paul... Tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, 
Christ will be of no value to you at all. He's saying, if you're going to be circumcised, if you're going to follow the law, if you're going to be the person of rules and regulations, I want to tell you that you do not need Christ. Wow! And this is not just about the law of the, of the Jewish nation. This is about any element of rules and regulations that would connect you to God. Nothing connects you to God other than Jesus and Him crucified and risen again. That's what distinguishes Christianity. It's not what you do in order to get God on your good side. Let's remove God from that. Let's take Him to another area. Let's remove Him out of that box because it is not true. He's saying, you know what? I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised, that means any man that, that follows the law, that he is obligated to obey the whole law, which they know is impossible. You don't need a, a clever person to explain to you that it's pretty hard to cover 613 command every time you're about to make a decision. You know why? Because we have something deep within us that can't cope with maintaining such a high standard. The law, like we said last time, is a custodian, is, is, a, is, a, is, is almost what, what they call, what Paul called him the pedagogos, a guy who is a slave, who is educated, highly educated, and he keeps the children in, in, in a way, you know, uh, putting on a, in, in a particular schooling and, 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 and character formation until they are set free to become children, until they're crowned by their, by their fathers, as now they're no longer minors. So he's saying that law makes you slave, makes you have no better uh, relationship with God and no rights, and, and you can't experience the privilege of a son. The law makes you slave. And then he goes on in verse 13 and says another slavery that he wants to take them out of. It says, you, my brothers. This is a little bit of a different tone than you foolish Galatians. He says, you, my brothers, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh or the, the, the sinful nature. Rather, so serve one another in love. Okay, here is, here is the thing. Paul's opponents are saying this. If you completely get away from obedience or adherence to the law, if you no longer need to follow rules and regulations to be good with God, well, you're going to set people into a pathway of being completely lawless, that they will use this freedom as a license to live life the way they want it, how they want it, whenever they want it, gonna be, it's going to be a, an opportunity, which is actually is a military type of, a, of, of a idiom. It's a, it's a military metaphor to say that, that the flesh or, or our sinful nature is going to be like an enemy, a malicious enemy that is going to take this opportunity to take over. He's saying to them, I understand. That for you, it's either obedience of the law, follow rules and regulations and discipline people when they don't do them, or people, you're worried that people are going to live life as they want it in the passion lust of the flesh, that they're going to live a miserable life. And Paul is saying to them that there are two types of slavery. There is just as you think there is slavery to sin and lust, there is also slavery to the law. They both. The same, the two different expressions of the same thing. So if you, uh, if you look with me to the next slide, he's, he's separating for them the concept of the law and slavery to the law with slavery to lust. 
But he's saying they are exactly the same thing. Saying you're worried that people are going to be slaves to lust, to the flesh, to do everything that they want. You know the idea of flesh or the sinful nature is basically everything you and I are without God. Every inclination, every dream, every ambition, every habit, anything that you are without the grace of God, without the God control over your life, without your union with God. So he's saying, you know, slavery to the law or slavery to lust, that basically means the just me. This is who I am without God. It has different expressions. It's the same thing. It's saying, I've got to give you a better option. I want you to be free to love. There is the law, there is lust or license to live whichever way you feel like it. But then in the middle, there is love. Hey, if you have been part of an environment with Christians who just brag about the way they perform their duties, and they live such a legalistic and judgmental life, and they harsh with you and you're an unchristian person, I want to tell you, they do not represent the Christ we're talking about. They may have the name of being Christians, but they don't know the Christ that we're talking about. Or if you see Christians who say, hey, I've been saved by grace. I am born again. I can do what I want. I want to tell you, if they're stuffing around with all their life to do what they want when they want it, and they're living life just like every other person who doesn't know Jesus, I want to tell you, they do not know Christ, even if they call themselves Christian. Paul says there is a different way. Of living and that is love let's let's read that scripture that that appeared in the slide before look at that he defines it he says but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature or the flesh rather serve one another in love rather serve one another in love the previous the previous uh, slide please Jason serve one another in love the entire law is summed up or fulfilled in a single command or in a single word. So here he's differentiating between the ten words of the ten commands and a single word. He's basically summarizing. How crazy is that? You know, you, you, you would be a freak if you could bring so many diverse things. It's not just the ten commands. You're talking about to a Jewish people who've got 613 commands and saying, I tell you what, you can fulfill all of that. There is the one thing that changes everything and it's one love. Love. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's something that Jesus spoke about. It's a, it's a command that appears in the book of Leviticus. And it says that love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus changed the idea of neighbor from who you like or the, your people or your in-group to every person that you encounter. That is nowhere else in any other beliefs where you can love somebody so genuinely so spontaneously you don't have to discern 613 laws before you make a decision about what you can do with the you know all right boxing gloves for a sec close you shut your ears if you don't want the what i'm about to say because it's going to be harsh if you're harsh with people if you do not know how to love people I don't know that you know God. The scripture makes it utterly clear. You could be like the Galatians. 
who are debating religious concepts and theological ideas as much as they want. And Paul is saying, you are so intuitive and you're so well researched. But the reality is, if you do not love, you have stuffed up. You're talking about the law. But if you do not love the people around you, which you aren't, you have missed the point. You've missed the point. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out. Or you will be destroyed by each other. The, the idea here is of an image of, of, of uh, wild animals that are, are, are attacking each other. It's saying instead of being using your freedom to hurt other people, it says serve one another. The idea here is of a slave doing the duties of a slave. What is he saying? He's saying be like Jesus. He's the ultimate example of being there washing feet, which was the duty of the lower slave. If you want to fulfill the law, be like Jesus. If you want to live the type of Christianity that we've converted it to cognitive assertions and beliefs, that is not Christianity. Christianity always have been, always will be about Jesus-like living. That's what a disciple knew. His role, his whole identity, his whole picture was like living like Jesus, not knowing stuff and going out and living a life that has nothing to good to do with the character of Christ. He's saying, let me tell you something. It all gets completed. In one single word, and that is loving and serving like Jesus. He goes on to explain to them why they're living the life that they're currently living. And the dilemma and the conflict that they are experiencing. It says in verse 16, it says, so I say, live by the Spirit. The actual translation of it, by the Spirit, keep on living. It's a moment, moment thing, and he puts the emphasis on the Spirit. He says, by the Spirit, keep on living. It's a continuous thing. Don't do it in your own abilities. It says, and you will not gratify. And in this actual sentence, it's double negative to create the, 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 the emphasis on it. That, but we don't use it very much in, in, in English, but it's a double negative. It says, by no means will you gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Because they're saying, well, I can't really love because it's not within my nature to love somebody just like I love myself. Nobody does that. We talk about it. But it's not within our capacities as human because you know who's number one. Regardless of what you say to other people, even in marital relationships, unfortunately, people are in it for what they will get out of it. Because that's the human virus, the defect in our DNA. It says, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit or the, uh, uh, what is contrary to the flesh or to the sinful nature, they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want to. But if you are led or continually being led by the spirit, you are not under law or under the obligation and slavery to living just you life. Isn't it freaky? Do you know if you truly and honestly receive union with Jesus? 
If you made a decision that you would no longer live independent of God, and that you believe that Jesus died and rose again, He is truly the Son of God. He's truly God incarnate that has come to take your sins away, has come to give you a brand new life. And that you receive the Holy Spirit truly and honestly. Not know about the works. I've been in a traditional church where we all were talked about was the work of the Holy Spirit. You have only a, a, a capacity to relate with the work of the Holy Spirit. He's actually a person. He's not a machine. He's, he's a person that unites to you. Regardless of what you tell me your, your denominational background is, the scripture tells us in the book of, of Galatians over and over again that the Christian experience involved justification as much as it involved adoption, as much as it involved a reception of the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit in order to live a life that is contrary to the just you. You know what he was saying? He's saying you have two ways and two natures of living. You have the just me nature and you have the Jesus me nature. You have the just me nature that wants to do stuff your own way. You have your own ambition. You're the number one. You have a plan in your mind for your family. You have a plan in your mind for your future. And you have a plan of how people are going to see you. Or you can die to that. Or you can reduce its impact over your life. Because there's conflict between that and between the spirit that gives you the DNA of Jesus. You have a new nature. It's almost, you know, I don't know if it's still there. I'm not a mechanic, but I remember a while ago in, when they were converting uh, petrol, um, uh, you know, cars uh, to gas, you know, to operate on gas, not just petrol. You had a switch to whether to, to, to get it work. Is that right, Daniel? Yeah, thank you. I, I, here's my authority. It's not uh, uh, Wikipedia. It's Daniel Zybe. Um Whether you, you switch between that or that, that will determine what will be used. And you have two natures. You can switch that or you can switch that every moment of every day. That's why he says, in the spirit, live or keep on living moment by moment. You get a switch because you have two natures against each other. You know, if you are living a life and accidentally every now and again, you're living selfishly. You're living for yourself. You're living life away from God. It doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. It means that you didn't flick the switch on to allow God's spirit, the DNA, to allow the Jesus you to, to, to come to the surface. He's saying that's the way that we act. That is how you act. If you want to summarize morality, you either live life as just you or you live life as Jesus you. And I know what you would love most. You know what you want. You want the freedom to be able to be the Jesus you because the more like Jesus you are, the more human you are and your family knows it. Your family knows it. Your friends know it. You know what you want to be and you know what they would like you to be. They know what matters to them. And he's saying to them, look, that is the rock bottom line. You either live the just me life or the Jesus me life. And just so I can show you how hard it is for you to live the just you life, Paul goes on to tell them what they would look like if they lived that life. And saying, let me tell you, what you will look like eventually. And you know that Galatians because you lived it that way. And you know people around you that are living it that way. But let me tell you what you will look like. The works of the flesh or of the sinful nature. The acts or the works of the sinful nature are obvious. They are they four categories if we can show them. Number one is sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery. What is that word? Apparently it means lack of decency. And then you've got the second thing, which is idolatry and witchcraft. 
then it goes on to, that's obviously about religious, um, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, lack of worshipping God. And then it talks about a relational breakdown. It speaks about hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, faction and envy. And then it finally speaks about lack of boundaries, drunkness, orgy and the like. And he's basically saying this. If you're going to live the just to your life, here is your end result. This is what you're going to end up doing. This is what you're going to be ending like. The first word sexual immorality actually in the Greek means uh, uh, pornography. It doesn't just mean sexual immorality. It means everything that out of, out, of, out of the guidance of marriage. Listen, we don't have to tell the world how they should behave. It is not our job as a church to tell them whether they, they, they should live in a particular way in any section. They're they, they not under our, our, our framework, but... You, as a church, as God people, you need to know that any sexual expression outside a man and a woman living in marriage is wrong. I don't care how tolerant you think the church must be. This is God's opinion. Because God knows how this is going to hurt you and He wants to free you from the consequences of the future that you currently think is pleasurable, but it's going to end up to be pain for you and for those people around you. Impurity and the bockrit, bock, goodness. Can they get another word? What is it in Egyptian? I don't know, but it will be easier than that. Then you talk about idolatry and witchcraft. You know the word, the word witchcraft comes from mucking around with, with chemicals. It's basically drugs. And that's what they did. It was about magic to, to either change the, the, the outcome of, a, of an experience or to change their experience of the reality. And that's why... Even today, you see people abusing drugs because they want to change outcomes, either externally or internally. And then it speaks about breakdown, about horrible relationship with one another. And who wants to do that? Maybe you like it, but your family don't. The people around you don't want you to live in a, in a selfish, ambitious way. They don't want you to, to go out of them with, with temperature. That's the way I am. No, that's not the way you are. You're looking at the wrong nature. That's who you used to be. That's what we're going to flick the switch on because that's not you. It raises its ugly head, but that's not you. You cannot own it. You can't say just the way I am. That's because of my upbringing. That's because my auntie and my dad used to fight together. That's not because my dad and my granddad used to walk the dog and they used to get angry at each other. That's rubbish. That's what you used to be. That's not what you're meant to be. That's not the DNA that Christ has given you and then the wildlife what meant to be a type of good life you and i know who we want to be you do not want to be the just you it's a horrible thing and then in verse 22 nearly finished it says but the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace wow wouldn't you love that it's saying, if you live the Jesus you, if you, can you see the word fruit? It's not fruits. It's like grape. You know, you get the whole bunch. It's all connected together. You don't get one of it. So I'm working on my love. At the moment. No, 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 no. It comes together because you know what it represents? It represents the character of Jesus. He's not interested in adjectives. He wants you to live like Jesus. And he's trying to describe to you in his uh, uh, God word. Aspects. Jesus had love, joy, and peace. It represents him. It says that Jesus loved so much. It was his essence of who he is. 
He just told them in Galatians 2 that Jesus loved me so much that he gave himself for me. That's the essence of Jesus. And joy. Do you remember Jesus in the midst of all the betrayal and the difficulty and the abuse? He would say to them, my joy I, I will give to you. I say those words to you so that you may have my joy and that my joy may be full in you. Wow! If you can live life being troubled so much by your greatest and closest friends and still have joy that in spite of difficult circumstances, wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't you want to rejoice in God rather than, ah, oh, you know, I want to read the Bible. I've got to push myself. Imagine if you actually enjoy time with God. Imagine. Imagine if like, uh, you, you don't want to socialize or uh, you don't want to spend time stuffing around with games or, or TV or whatever. I'm just so addicted to the Word of God because He gives me joy. It's written that in His presence there is fullness of joy. Jesus had joy and he wants you to have joy. He says, peace. In your relationship with God, in your inner life, and in a relationship with other people, harmony. But ultimately, it's the shalom that God gives. That you have peace with God upon which everything else rests. That you have harmony with God, that you know that he likes you. He doesn't just love you out of sympathy, but he enjoys your company. It's the shalom of well-being and prosperity. In your relationship with God, then it talks not only about God word, it talks about, you know, relational um, aspects. It speaks of forbearance. It's not just uh, uh, patience. It's about bearing with each other, not being provoked when other people do wrong to you. It's kindness. That's the active work of, of being good to people, whether they deserve it or not. It resembles what God does with sinners, with people that have no, 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 no goodness by which God would give them something. And then it speaks of goodness. It speaks of active love. It speaks of being good. It, it represents God. It talks of God as being good in character. And then it speaks of inner life. Faithfulness, the actual word of faithfulness means trustworthy or reliable or dependability. Wouldn't you want that? It speaks of gentleness. And gentleness doesn't mean just meekness of somebody being in a, 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 in a doormat. It, it actually means strength under control. It means being humble before God, but sensitive and considerate to other people. You know, it represents what Jesus is. He says, learn from me because I'm, I'm lowly in heart, gentle and lowly in heart. And then it speaks of self-control, which is opposite to all the other things that the flesh takes control of. You can be in control. It actually means self-mastery. This is what we call sanctification. This is the character of Jesus. If you ever will read the word sanctify, or sanctification in the scripture. This is what it's like. Sanctification basically means the spirit of God imparts the righteousness of, of Christ in your life. And remember we talked about justification before and said that God declares you righteous. Here he doesn't just declare you righteous. He makes you righteous. It's not about something that you can say, I have got that position. It's actually you living that life gradually, progressively, more consistently. You reveal Jesus in your life, which is all those things, the nine fruit that we've looked at. You know what it actually means? Do you know that every one of those nine fruit are actually also commands? Love one another, you know, rejoice in the Lord. And I say also rejoice, be, uh, you know, uh, keep the, the, the uh, unity um, of peace. But all of those things, be kind to one another. They all command. So how come they fruit? It's because the Holy Spirit empowers you to live them out compared to the law, which is external from you. The Holy Spirit empowers you to live like Jesus. You and I have no excuse. 
to be like Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit does the trick. The Holy Spirit is not leaving you to your own devices and say, go do it, I dare you. The Holy Spirit says, I'm going to come in and I'm going to manifest the life of Jesus in you. Why wouldn't we want that? Imagine the people around you. Imagine your family when you're living in, at home in love and joy and peace. And instead of being grump-head and, and being difficult and hard to deal with. And it's like, what the heck happened to you? Jesus is starting to show a little bit of his character. He told me, maturity is knowing more about God and doing more for God. Which Bible have you been reading? It's not the Bible I've got. Maturity is merely the character of Christ being manifested in you. Nothing more, nothing less. I'm happy to have a debate about that. In love, of course. How do we do that? Look at the next couple of, of verses just before we finish off. It says this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh or the sinful nature with its passions and desires. They basically acknowledge that they have been killed with Jesus. You can't get rid of, you can't cast the flesh out. It's like, no, no, I, I pray in the name of Jesus and you think it's going to happen. That, that it's going to stick with you for the rest of your life until you see Jesus face to face. But you can control it. You can say to it, you're dead. You have no hope to rise up. You're dead. I'm not going to give you opportunity. I'm not going to let you influence me because you're dead to me. You're crucified with Christ. With your passions and desires. And then he says, we live. That's moment by moment. By the Spirit. Which much the same as we're led by the Spirit. Much the same as you walk in the Spirit. Which is not a passive word. It's an active-passive concept. Where you have to surrender to the Spirit so He can lead you. And that's what I'm going to invite you to do today. In our Christianity, I told you last week, the whole experience of Christianity has three things. Justification in God's court. Reception of God's Spirit. And adoptions into God's family. And today, I want to remind you that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You can be active passive today and let Him lead you in manifesting the character of Jesus in your life because the world so desperately, desperately needs it. And your family so desperately, desperately needs it. And your wife and your husband so desperately, desperately need to see the Jesus in you. And your children, I bet you, if they knew about this, they will be praying and fasting that the Jesus that lives inside you would accidentally or intentionally just get out of you and ooze out of you because you are no better human than when you're more like Jesus. That's Christianity. So just as the band comes to sing the last song, I'm going to invite you. I'm going to invite you to acknowledge the Spirit of God that dwells in you if you've received union with Jesus. But if you haven't, and you say to me, Peter, what is Christianity? How do I begin Christianity? I'm going to tell you, Christianity is not about signing the paperwork. It's not like Islam, you know, Ashhadu anna la ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, and all of a sudden you become a Muslim. Christianity is about a vibrant, living relationship with God's Spirit where His DNA, the DNA of Jesus, oozes out of you gradually. Wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't you want that? 
Well, you don't have to feel like you have to do the right thing. That inside of you, you want to do the right thing. You see, in fasting, when we fast for a long time, I never, ever, ever struggle with cheese. Because I hate cheese. I could fast. I do fast. I have been fasting for 40-something years of cheese. But you're probably going to struggle if I tell you you're going to spend 15 days without cheese, right? It's like, what do you mean? Is there maybe soy cheese or whatever cheese? I like, I hate all cheese. All smell of cheese. All looks of cheese. Please don't give me a cheese sandwich. Imagine if that can be you. Well, you don't have to struggle against the works of the flesh. Where there is something inside of you hates that imagine if Jesus could ooze out of you not because of what you do but because of the spirit of God that abides in you so just as the team sings our last song and say I surrender would you be passive actively surrendering to God's spirit because he's got an appointment with you tonight today maybe tonight as well I'm going to come back and I'm going to pray. But you can pray to God because He's always present. He's so near to you. He loves you deeply. He wants to be united to you. But if you've been a Christian before, I'm going to ask you to invite the Spirit of God to take control. Take control again because what you will be is exactly what you've been dreaming of becoming when the Spirit of God takes control over your life.